Book seven, chapters twenty and twenty one of On War, volumes two and three by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter twenty Diversion. According to the ordinary use of language, under the term diversion is understood such an incursion into the enemy's country as draws off a portion of his force from the principal point. It is only when this is the chief end in view, and not the gain of the object which is selected as the point of attack, that it is an enterprise of a special character, otherwise it is only an ordinary attack. Naturally, the diversion must at the same time always have an object of attack, for it is only the value of this object that will induce the enemy to send troops for its protection. Besides, in case the undertaking does not succeed as a diversion, this object is a compensation for the forces expended in the attempt. These objects of attack may be fortresses or important magazines or rich and large towns, especially capital cities, contributions of all kinds. Lastly, assistance may be afforded, in this way, to discontented subjects of the enemy. It is easy to conceive that diversions may be useful, but they certainly are not so always. On the contrary, they are just as often injurious. The chief condition is that they should withdraw from the principal theatre of war more of the enemy's troops than we employ, on the diversion for if they only succeed in drawing off just the same number then their efficacy as diversions properly called ceases and the undertaking becomes a mere subordinate attack even where on account of circumstances we have in view to attain a very great end with a very small force as for instance to make an easy capture of an important fortress and another attack is made adjoining to the principal attack to assist the latter that is no longer a diversion when two states are at war, and a third falls upon one of them, such an event is very commonly called a diversion, but such an attack differs in nothing from an ordinary attack except in its direction. There is therefore no occasion to give it a particular name, for in theory it should be a rule only to denote by particular names such things as are in their nature distinct. But if small forces are to attract large ones, there must obviously be some special cause, and therefore... For the object of a diversion, it is not sufficient merely to detach some troops at a point not hitherto occupied. If the assailant, with a small corps of a thousand men, overruns one of his enemy's provinces, not belonging to the theatre of war, and levies contribution, etc., it is easy to see beforehand that the enemy cannot put a stop to this by detaching a thousand men, but that if he means to protect the province from invaders, he must at all events send a considerably larger force. But it may be asked, cannot a defender, instead of protecting his own province, restore the balance by sending a similar detachment to plunder a province in our country? Therefore, if an advantage is to be obtained by an aggressor in this way, it must first be ascertained that there is more to be got, or to be threatened, in the defender's provinces than in his own. If this is the case, then no doubt a weak diversion will occupy a force on the enemy's side greater than that composing the enterprise. On the other hand, this advantage naturally diminishes as the masses increase. For 50,000 men can defend a province of moderate extent not only against equal, but even against somewhat superior numbers. The advantage of large diversions is therefore very doubtful, and the greater they become, the more decisive must be the other circumstances which favour a diversion, if any good is to come out of such an enterprise upon the whole. Now, these favourable circumstances may be a. Forces which the assailant holds available for a diversion without weakening the great mass of his force. B. 
points belonging to the defender which are of vital importance to him and can be threatened by a diversion c discontented subjects of the same d a rich province which can supply a considerable quantity of munitions of war if only these diversions are undertaken which when tested by these different considerations promise results it will be found that an opportunity of making a diversion does not occur frequently but now comes another important point every diversion brings war into a district into which the war would not otherwise have penetrated for that reason it will always be the means more or less of calling forth military forces which would otherwise have continued in abeyance this will be done in a way which will be very sensibly felt if the enemy has any organized militia and means of arming the nation at large it is quite the natural order of things and amply shown by experience that if a district is suddenly threatened by an enemy's force and nothing has been prepared beforehand for its defence all the most efficient official functionaries immediately lay hold of and set in motion every extraordinary means that can be imagined in order to ward off the impending danger thus new powers of resistance spring up such as are next to a people's war and may easily excite one this is a point which should be kept well in view in every diversion in order that we may not dig our own graves the expeditions to north holland in seventeen ninety nine and Walcheren in eighteen o nine regarded as diversions are only to be justified in so far that there was no other way of employing the english troops but there is no doubt that the sum total of the means of resistance of the french was thereby increased and every landing in france would have just the same effect to threaten the french coast certainly offers great advantages because by that means an important body of troops becomes neutralized in watching the coast but a landing with a large force can never be justifiable unless we count on the assistance of a province in opposition to the government the less a great decision is looked forward to in war the more will diversions be allowable but so much the smaller will also certainly be the gain to be derived from them they are only a means of bringing the stagnant masses into motion readers note heading execution one a diversion may include in itself a real attack then the execution has no special character in itself except boldness and expedition two it may also have as an object to appear more than it really is being in fact a demonstration as well the special means to be employed in such a case could only suggest themselves to a subtle mind well versed in men and in the existing state of circumstances it follows from the nature of the thing that there must be a great fractioning of forces on such occasions three if the forces employed are not quite inconsiderable and the retreat is restricted to certain points then a reserve on which the whole may rally is an essential condition end of chapter twenty chapter twenty one invasion almost all that we have to say on this subject consists in an explanation of the term we find the expression very frequently used by modern authors and also that they pretend to denote by it something particular word de invasion occurs perpetually in french authors they use it as a term for every attack which enters deep into the enemy's country and perhaps sometimes mean to apply it as the antithesis to methodical attack that is one which only nibbles at the frontier but this is a very unphilosophical confusion of language whether an attack is to be confined to the frontier or to be carried into the heart of the country whether it shall make the seizure of the enemy's strong places the chief object or seek out the core of the enemy's power and pursue it unremittingly is the result of circumstances and not dependent on a system in some cases to push forward may be more methodical and at the same time more prudent than to tarry on the frontier 
but in most cases it is nothing else than just the fortunate result of a vigorous attack and consequently does not differ from it in any respect readers note there follows a heading on the culminating point of victory which is marked with an asterisk the asterisk links to a footnote which says see chapters four and five readers note ends the conqueror in a war is not always in a condition to subdue his adversary completely often in fact almost universally there is a culminating point of victory experience shows this sufficiently but as the subject is one especially important to the theory of war and the pivot of almost all plans of campaigns while at the same time on its surface some apparent contradictions glitter as in ever-changing colours we therefore wish to examine it more closely and look for its essential causes victory as a rule springs from a preponderance of the sum of all physical and moral powers combined undoubtedly it increases this preponderance or it would not be sought for and purchased at a great sacrifice victory itself does this unquestionably also its consequences have the same effect but not to the utmost point generally only up to a certain point this point may be very near at hand and is sometimes so near that the whole of the results of a victorious battle are confined to an increase of the moral superiority how this comes about we have now to examine in the progress of the action in war the combatant force is incessantly meeting with elements which strengthen it and others which weaken it hence it is a question of superiority on one side or the other as every diminution of power on one side is to be regarded as an increase on the opposite it follows of course that this double current this ebb and flow takes place whenever troops are advancing or retiring it is therefore necessary to find out the principal cause of this alteration in the one case to determine the other along with it in advancing the most important causes of the increase of strength which the assailant gains are one the loss which the enemy's army suffers because it is usually greater than that of the assailant two the loss which the enemy suffers in inert military means such as magazines depots bridges etc and which the assailant does not share with him three that from the moment the assailant enters the enemy's territory there is a loss of provinces to the defence consequently of sources of new military forces for that the advancing army guards a portion of those resources in other words gains the advantage of living at the expense of the enemy five the loss of internal organization and of the regular action of everything on the side of the enemy six that the allies of the enemy secede from him and others join the conqueror seven lastly the discouragement of the enemy who lets the arms in some measure drop out of his hands the causes of the decrease of strength in an army advancing are one that it is compelled to lay siege to the enemy's fortresses to blockade them or observe them or that the enemy who did the same before the victory in his retreat draws in these corps on his main body two that from the moment the assailant enters the enemy's territory the nature of the theatre of war is changed it becomes hostile we must occupy it for we cannot call any portion our own beyond what is in actual occupation and yet it everywhere presents difficulties to the whole machine which must necessarily tend to weaken its effects three that we are removing further away from our own resources whilst the enemy is drawing nearer to his this causes a delay in the replacement of expended power four that the danger which threatens the state rouses other powers to its protection five lastly the greater efforts of the adversary in consequence of the increased danger on the other hand a relaxation of effort on the side of the victorious state all these advantages and disadvantages can exist together meet each other in a certain measure and pursue their way in opposite directions except that the last meet as real opposites cannot pass 
therefore mutually exclude each other. This alone shows how infinitely different may be the effect of a victory, according as it stuns the vanquished or stimulates him to greater exertions. We shall now try to characterise in a few words each of these points singly. 1. The loss of the enemy, when defeated, may be at the greatest in the first moment of defeat, and then daily diminish in amount until it arrives at a point where the balance is restored as regards our force. But it may go on increasing every day in an ascending ratio. The difference of situation and relations determines this. We can only say that in general, with a good army, the first will be the case, with an indifferent army, the second. Next to the spirit of the army, the spirit of the government is here the most important thing. It is of great consequence in war to distinguish between the two cases in practice, in order not to stop just at the point where we ought to begin in good earnest, and vice versa. 2. The loss which the enemy sustains in that part of the apparatus of war which is inert may ebb and flow just in the same manner, and this will depend on the accidental position and nature of the depots from which supplies are drawn. This subject, however, in the present day cannot be compared with the others in point of importance. 3. The third advantage must necessarily increase as the army advances. Indeed, it may be said that it does not come into consideration until an army has penetrated far into the enemy's country. That is to say, until a third or a fourth of the country have been left in rear. In addition, the intrinsic value which a province has in connection with the war comes also into consideration. In the same way, the fourth advantage should increase with the advance. But with respect to these two last, it is also to be observed that their influence on the combatant powers actually engaged in the struggle is seldom felt so immediately, and they only work slowly and by circuitous course. Therefore, we should not bend the bow too much on their account, that is to say, not place ourselves in any dangerous position. The fifth advantage, again, only comes into consideration if we have made a considerable advance, and if by the form of the enemy's country some provinces can be detached from the principal mass, as these, like limbs compressed by ligatures, usually soon die off. As to six and seven, it is at least probable that they increase with advance. Furthermore, we shall return to them hereafter. Let us now pass on to the causes of weakness. 1. The besieging, blockade, and investment of fortresses generally increase as the army advances. This weakening influence alone acts so powerfully on the condition of the combatant force that it may soon outweigh all the advantages gained. No doubt in modern times a system has been introduced to blockading places with a small number of troops, or watching them with a still smaller number, and also the enemy must keep garrisons in them. Nevertheless, they remain a great element of security. The garrisons consist very often in half of people who have taken no part in the war previously. Before those places which are situated near the line of communication, it is necessary for the assailant to leave a force at least double the strength of the garrison, and if it is desirable to lay formal siege or to starve out one single considerable place, a small army is required for the purpose. 2. The second cause, the taking up of a theatre of war in the enemy's country, increases necessarily with the advance, and if it does not further weaken the condition of the combatant force at the moment, it does so at all events in the long run. We can only regard as our theatre of war so much of the enemy's country as we actually possess, that is to say, where we either have small corps in the field, or where we have left here and there strong garrisons in large towns, or stations along the roads, etc., now, however small the garrisons may be which are detached, still they weaken the combatant force considerably, but this is the smallest evil. Every army has strategic flanks, that is, the country which borders both sides of its lines of communications. The weakness of these parts is not sensibly felt, as long as the enemy is similarly situated with respect to this. 
but that can only be the case as long as we are in our own country. As soon as we get into the enemy's country, the weakness of these parts is very much felt because the smallest enterprise promises some result when directed against a long line, only feebly or not at all covered, and these attacks may be made from any quarter in the enemy's country. The further we advance, the longer these flanks become, and the danger arising from them is enhanced in an increased ratio. For not only are they difficult to cover, but the spirit of enterprise is also first roused in the enemy, chiefly by long, insecure lines of communication, and the consequences which their loss may entail in case of a retreat are matter of grave consideration. All this contributes to place a fresh load on an advancing army at every step of its progress, so that if it has not commenced with a more than ordinary superiority, it will feel itself always more and more cramped in its plans, gradually weakened in its impulsive force, and at last in a state of uncertainty and anxiety as to its situation. 3. The third cause, the distance from the sources from which the incessantly diminishing combatant force is to be just as incessantly filled up, increases with the advance. A concrete army is like the light of a lamp in this respect. The more the oil which feeds it sinks into the reservoir and recedes from the focus of light, the smaller the light becomes until at length it is quite extinguished. The richness of the conquered provinces may certainly diminish this evil very much, but can never entirely remove it because there are always a number of things which can only be supplied to the army from its own country, men in particular, because the subsidies furnished by the enemy's country are, in most cases, neither so promptly nor so surely forthcoming as in our own country, because the means of meeting any unexpected requirement cannot be so quickly procured, because misunderstandings and mistakes of all kinds cannot so soon be discovered and remedied. If a prince does not lead his army in person, as became the custom in the last wars, if he is not anywhere near it, then another and very great inconvenience arises in the loss of time occasioned by communications backwards and forwards, for the fullest powers conferred on a sufficient commander of an army are never sufficient to meet every case in the wide expanse of his activity. 4. The change in political alliances. If these changes produced a victory, should be, such as they are, disadvantageous to the conqueror, they will probably be so in a direct relation to his progress, just as in this case, if they are of an advantageous nature. This all depends on the existing political alliances, interests, customs and tendencies, on princes, ministers, etc. In general, we can only say that when a great state which has smaller allies is conquered, these usually secede very soon from their alliance, so that the victory in this respect, with every blow, becomes stronger. But if the conquered state is small, protectors much sooner present themselves when his very existence is threatened, and others who have helped to place him in his present embarrassment will turn round to prevent his complete downfall. 5. The increased resistance on the part of the enemy which is called forth. Sometimes the enemy drops his weapon out of his hands from terror and stupefaction. Sometimes an enthusiastic paroxysm seizes him. Everyone runs to arms, and the resistance is much stronger after the first defeat than it was before. The character of the people and of the government, the nature of the country and its political alliances, are here the data from which the probable effect must be conjectured. What countless differences these two last points also make in the plans which may or should be made in war in one case and another. Whilst one, through an excess of caution and what is called methodical proceedings, fritters away his good fortune, another, from want of a rational reflection, tumbles into destruction. In addition, we must here call to mind the supineness which not unfrequently comes over the victorious side when danger is removed. 
whilst on the contrary renewed efforts are then required in order to follow up the success if we cast a general glance over these different and antagonistic principles the deduction doubtless is that the profitable use of the onward march in a war of aggression in the generality of cases diminishes the preponderance with which the assailants set out or which has to be gained by victory here the question must naturally strike us if this be so what is it which impels the conqueror to follow up the career of victory to continue the offensive and can this really be called making further use of the victory would it not be better to stop where as yet there is hardly any diminution of the preponderance gained to this we must naturally answer the preponderance of combat forces is only the means not the end the end or object is to subdue the enemy or at least to take from him part of his territory in order thus to put ourselves in a condition to realize the value of the advantages we have gained when we conclude a peace even if our aim is to conquer the enemy completely we must be content that perhaps every step we advance reduces our preponderance but it does not necessarily follow from this that there will be nil before the fall of the enemy the fall of the enemy may take place before that and if it is to be obtained by the last minimum of preponderance it would be an error not to expend it for that purpose the preponderance which we have to acquire in war is therefore the means not the end and it must be staked to gain the latter but it is necessary to know how far it will reach in order not to go beyond that point and instead of fresh advantages reap disaster it is not necessary to introduce special examples from experience in order to prove that this is the way in which the strategic preponderance exhausts itself in the strategic attack it is rather the multitude of instances which has forced us to investigate the causes of it it is only since the appearance of bonaparte that we have known campaigns between civilized nations in which the preponderance has led without interruption to the fall of the enemy before his time every campaign ended with the victorious army seeking to win a point where it could simply maintain itself in a state of equilibrium at this point the movement of victory stopped even if the retreat did not become necessary now this culminating point of victory will also appear in the future in all wars in which the overthrow of the enemy is not the military object of the war and the generality of wars will still be of this kind the natural aim of all single plans of campaigns is the point at which the offensive changes into the defensive but now to overstep this point it is more than simply a useless expenditure of power yielding no further result it is a destructive step which causes reaction and this reaction is according to all general experience productive of most disproportionate effects the last fact is so common and appears so natural and easy to understand that we need not enter circumstantially into the causes want of organization in the conquered land and the very opposite effect which a serious loss instead of the looked-for fresh victory makes on the feelings are the chief causes in every cause the moral forces courage on the one side rising often to audacity and extreme depression on the other now begin generally their active play the losses on the retreat are increased thereby and the hitherto successful party now generally thanks providence if he can escape with only the surrender of all his gains without losing some of his own territory we must now clear up an apparent contradiction it may be generally supposed that as long as progress in the attack continues there must still be a preponderance and that as the defensive which will commence at the end of the victorious career is a stronger form of war than the offensive therefore there is so much the less danger of becoming unexpectedly the weaker party but yet there is and keeping history in view we must admit that the greatest danger of a reverse is often just at the moment when the offensive ceases and passes into the defensive we shall try and find the cause of this the superiority which we have attributed to the defensive form of war consists 
one in the use of ground two in the possession of a prepared theatre of war three in the support of the people four in the advantage of the state of expectancy it must be evident that these principles cannot always be forthcoming and active in a like degree that is consequently one defence is not always like another and therefore also that the defence will not always have this same superiority over the offensive this must be particularly the case in a defensive which commences after the exhaustion of an offensive and has its theatre of war naturally situated at the apex of an offensive triangle thrust far forward into the country of the four principles above named this defensive only enjoys the first the use of the ground undiminished the second generally vanishes altogether and the third becomes negative and the fourth is very much reduced a few more words only by way of explanation respecting the last if the imagined equilibrium under the influence of which whole campaigns have often passed without any results because the side which should assume the initiative is wanting in the necessary resolution and just therein lies as we conceive the advantage of the state of expectancy if this equilibrium is disturbed by any offensive act the enemy's interests damaged and his will stirred up to action then the probability of his remaining in a state of indolent irresolution is much diminished a defence which is organised on conquered territory has a much more irritating character than one upon our own soil the offensive principle is engrafted on it in a certain measure and its nature is thereby weakened the quiet which dawn allowed frederick the second in silesia and saxony he would never have granted him in bohemia thus it is clear that the defensive which is interwoven or mixed up with an offensive undertaking is weakened in all its chief principles and therefore will no longer have the preponderance which belongs to it originally as no defensive campaign is composed of purely defensive elements so likewise no offensive campaign is made up entirely of offensive elements because besides the short intervals in every campaign in which both armies are on the defensive every attack which does not lead to a peace must necessarily end in a defensive in this manner it is the defensive itself which contributes to the weakening of the offensive this is so far from being an idle subtlety that on the contrary we consider it a chief disadvantage of the attack that we are afterwards reduced through it to a very disadvantageous defensive and this explains how the difference which originally exists between the strength of the offensive and defensive forms in war is gradually reduced we shall now show how it may completely disappear and the advantage for a short time may change into the reverse if we may be allowed to make use of an idea from nature we shall be able sooner to explain ourselves it is the time which every force in the material world requires to show its effect a power which if applied slowly by degrees would be sufficient to check a body in motion will be overcome by it if time fails this law of the material world is a striking illustration of many of the phenomena in our inner life if we are once roused to a certain train of thought it is not every motive sufficient in itself which can change or stop that current of thought time tranquillity and durable impressions on our senses are acquired so it is also in war when once the mind has taken a decided direction towards an object or turned back towards a harbour of refuge it may easily happen that the motives which in the one case naturally serve to restrain and those which in the other as naturally excite to enterprise are not felt at once in their full force and as the progress of action in the meantime continues one is carried along by the stream of movement beyond the line of equilibrium beyond the culminating point without being aware of it indeed it may never happen that in spite of the exhaustion of force the assailant supported by the moral forces which specially lie in the offensive like a horse drawing a load up hill finds it less difficult to advance than to stop 
By this we believe we have now shown without contradiction in itself how the assailant may pass that point where, if he had stopped at the right moment, he might still, through the defensive, have had a result that is equilibrium. Rightly to determine this point is therefore important in framing a plan of a campaign, as well as for the offensive, that he may not undertake what is beyond his powers, open bracket to a certain extent, contract debts, close bracket, as for the defensive that he may perceive and profit by this error if committed by the assailant. If now we look back at all the points which the commander should bear in mind in making his determination, and remember that he can only estimate the tendency and value of the most important of them through the consideration of many other near and distant relations, that he must to a certain extent guess at them, guess whether the enemy's army after the first blow will show a stronger core and increasing solidity, or like a Bologna vial will turn into dust as soon as the surface is injured, guess the extent of weakness and prostration which the drying up of certain sources, the interpretation of certain communications will produce on the military state of the enemy. Guess whether the enemy from the burning pain of the blow which has been dealt him will collapse powerless, or whether, like a wounded bull, he will rise to a state of fury. Lastly, guess whether other powers will be dismayed or roused, what political alliances are likely to be dissolved, and what are likely to be formed. When we say that he must hit all this, and much more, with the tact of his judgment, as the rifleman hits a mark, it must be admitted that such an act of the human mind is no trifle. A thousand wrong roads running here and there present themselves to the judgment, and whatever the number, the confusion and complexity of objects leaves undone, is completed by the sense of danger and responsibility. Thus it happens that the majority of generals prefer to fall short of the mark, rather than to approach too close. And thus it happens that a fine courage and great spirit of enterprise often go beyond the point, and therefore also fail to hit the mark. Only he that does great things with small means has made a successful hit. End of chapter 21 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia